Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My topic is human virtue, and I'm specifically going to be speaking about three genre of virtues, namely the theological, the intellectual, and moral virtues. Now, that's a very tall order to cover in the time that we've given ourselves this evening, and most of my interest is going to be in expounding the theological virtues, but in order to do that, I have to say something about the virtues that the theological virtues are in some ways structured upon. And and here's what I mean by that. When I say the word theological in the phrase theological virtue, I'm talking about what in Holy Scripture are referred to as faith, hope, and love. Now, you may come from a tradition where it's unusual for you to think of these things, faith, hope, and love, as virtues, but I'm going to be suggesting that that's exactly how we should think of them. What makes them theological, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, is basically three things. And to understand his reasoning, you have to know something about that word theological, It's based on the Greek word theos, meaning God. And the theological virtues are about God in a very particular respect. They're all aimed at God. But they're they're called theological virtues in two other senses because they are revealed to us by God, which is to say, These are virtues that could only be disclosed to us by God. They're not the deliverances of natural reason. And I'll I'll say something more about the third sense here in a bit. And if I I forget, you'll have to hold my feet to the fire in the Q&A. All that's by way of preview. I want to now back up, and I'm going to start talking about human virtue and In order to do that, I have to talk about human beings. And in order to talk about human beings, I have to talk about human nature and the human end, or the good of human beings, as I'll I'll call it. Okay? Last thing before I get going. If I were giving a lecture now on, say, a very special molecule or a protein, like maybe someone studies in a scientific course here. I would have to presuppose quite a few things. For example, I I wouldn't and couldn't, it would be completely impracticable for me to begin, say, with the periodic table, right? So I'm just going to be presupposing a a number of things in that same way. So if you hear something I say in the next several minutes that sounds like a premise that, that I haven't, explicitly entitled myself to, okay, make note of it, and ask a question about it. Okay? Ready, set, go.
So here, here's my idea. And my idea is the idea of St. Thomas Aquinas, and not just St. Thomas Aquinas, but many, many others besides. It is that human beings, first, are all of us, we belong to a natural kind. Now, we are creatures. We're, we are not just creatures, but we are more specifically animals. And like all animals, we have a more or less stable nature, okay? And to begin describing that nature, I could begin giving you a catalog of predicates, things that are true of human beings. So I might say something like, something that's true not just of human beings, but of creatures more generally, such as, well, you've noticed that we are, like all living things, inclined to live. Okay, we're, we're alive, and we, we are inclined to live. We, you know, all things are like this. All living things are like this. You know, a good testimony to this would be when you're moving out of your dorm room and all the fungus that's grown, you know, on your sink or something, you've noticed it's just done that all by itself. It's alive and it wants to live. And you want to get your deposit back, you're going to have to clean it. Maybe once. I'm thinking about my own dorm room. It, okay. Maybe, maybe I don't mean to insult your hygiene, but... Um, Living things want to live, and human beings want to live, and we are not just living things but, or, or animals, but we are social, okay? Not a, that's not true of every kind of thing or of every animal. So there are some animals that are rather solitary, okay? Leaving Animalia aside, think of the sea tortoise, right? You go to the beach and you see there's a, there's a spot that's been quartered off because there's, there have been sea turtles that have been, uh, there are eggs there, and the eggs will hatch, and these tortoises will begin making their way to the sea, and no one's going to help them with that. It's, you know, it's, that's, that's a tough go from the very beginning. You have to make your way from the sand to the ocean. And then once you get there, all kinds of things are after you. Well, this is a kind of animal life that is radically unlike human life. We're social creatures. We, so we, we form in ourselves by really by nature's necessity in familial units and in then more sophisticated and larger forms of community. We strive to live in community. We raise our children in community. We don't just kind of, you know, set them off like, good luck, kid, like a, like a sea tortoise. We're living creatures. We're social in orientation, and we are insatiably curious, and I think uniquely so. Okay, I, for many, many years, had a dog named Lucy. She's a Chesapeake Bay Retriever and just the most one of the most incredible animals I've ever known. This dog could lay out, she could catch a Frisbee at like 75 yards. She could bring me a beer from the refrigerator. She was, she was a sight to behold. But there were certain things that Lucy just took for granted that, say, my two-year-old son 
is rather curious about. So if I walk into a room and flip on the light, you know, Lucy just accepted this. That's how lights go on. This is how lights go off. When she turns on the faucet, puts the bowl under this faucet, here comes the water, that's how that works. There's no long, there's never, at one, there was never any point in the 12 years I spent with Lucy, you know, that involved a conversation like the one I'm, the ones I'm now having with my son as he's getting older, he's two. And those conversations, they start off like this. What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that called? What's that called? What's that? What's that? Why? Why? Why does it do that? Why does it do that? Because what? Why? And it just keeps going. Why? 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 And, and as a parent, this can be a little exhausting at times. But it's also a testament to the kinds of creatures we are. You wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have universities if it weren't, were not the case. I mean, there are some fields of research, I grant, that are kind of stifled and fizzling out, and it's really unclear and has been unclear for a little while what it is that the inquiry is all about, but they're still at, at universities. When they're doing what they were meant to do, there are people who are gathered in earnest pursuit of finding out the truth about the world and about human beings and about our place in it. And the idea of, that Thomas Aquinas had is that this is not just a cultural happenstance or something that has, that we've sort of fallen into. It's rather ingredient in our creatureliness, a mark of our condition as human beings. And that is because we are, as human beings, ordered by nature's necessity to, to the truth. We desire to know it in roughly the same way that we desire to live in community, that we desire to rear our young, that we desire to not to offend those among whom we live. We, we, we don't just want to live together like a, a herd. We're not just herd animals. They're in those that exists. There are some animals that herd together because, well, it's an adaptive feature of, of, and it's protective. This is how you protect at least most of the herd from predators. And, but we're not just living in proximity. We want to make something of our time together. We don't just feed at troughs. We, we, we eat and feast. And all this has to do with human nature says Thomas, and, and it has to do with our flourishing as particular kinds of creatures, okay? Now, the question that we has to be posed in order to talk about what virtue is, is first, if this is the kinds of things we are, then what is the best and happiest life that a human being can lead? Now, that's an easy question to ask, but you may be sitting there thinking, oh my, wow, are we going to go there? I mean, does this guy think that there's just, an, just one answer to this question? Well, kind of, I do. That does not to say that there's one form of life or, or, or even a set of definable forms of life that will always instantiate the answer to this question, but... I, I do think that we can say what is a good and happy life for a human being. And 
that answer will conform to a basic formula that will be true of any creature we ask this question of, okay? For any creature of any kind, the best and happiest form of life will be the one in which their highest capacities will be realized, okay? The notion here I'm drawing upon is originating here with Aristotle, who Thomas Aquinas looked to and whose works he commented on. It's the notion of an activity, of a perfect activity, of an activity that would fully engage the, each creature according to its kind. So I mentioned my dog Lucy earlier. Lucy, well, you can hear what her perfect activity is in her name. She's a Chesapeake Bay retriever. Lucy was a retriever and she lived for retrieving. And I don't want to be too hyperbolic about it and say something like she was not only a retriever, but she was the best retriever because she was the best at it, but she was really good. So a retriever retrieves. And if you've ever known a dog like this, okay, you know that they, they, they do, they, they live to, to do what they were made to do. And you'll know too that there are retrievers good and bad and that good retrievers retrieve well. And what I'm doing is pushing us toward this question. Well, if retrievers retrieve, what do humans do? What's our activity? What's the thing in which our natures are most fulfilled? And the very specific answer, which may still sound some, somewhat too general, but I think will suffice for this evening is that for human beings, the best and happiest life will be the one that's built around this activity to live in conformity with reason. The highest faculty of a human being, what makes us uniquely what we are, is that we are rational animals. We have reason. We can, we can, we don't just have desires, we can think about our desires, we can think about our thoughts, okay? And then we can think about that. We, we can know the world, we can ask questions about it, we can ask questions about ourselves and one another and our, and our desires and our ideas in relation to one another. And we can try to bring our ideas and desires into conformity with the world and with ourselves and the kinds of things we are precisely because we're rational creatures. And the best and happiest life then will be the one that, that brings all of our thinking and knowing and desiring into conformity with reason's judgments and reason's judgments will be right insofar as they actually actually make contact with the world okay you know we spend a lot of, we can we can spend a lot of our lives trying to impose the way we think things are or they should be onto the world to fashion them in some image of of, or, or in light of some aspiration we have. And in, if you're doing pottery, that's exactly the kind of thing you do. You take a lump of clay and you start spinning the wheel and you're shaping and forming 
something. But that's a very particular kind of thing, and it only works insofar as we own up to, say, the nature of clay and the fragility of human art and a whole host of other things. Okay, where does virtue fit in all this? Virtue, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, and again, this is not an idiosyncratic notion. You could attribute this idea to many other ancient and medieval and, and even modern thinkers, and not just Christian, but also Jewish and Islamic. Okay, A virtue on this, on this supposition is a quality that makes a person good and their work good. And a person will be good and their work or their activity will be good insofar as it contributes in some way to fulfilling their nature. So you need virtues in order to live a life in which it's possible to bring your, your thinking and desiring into conformity with, your, with, with human rationality, okay? And those are going to fall into a couple different categories. First, you're going to need what are called intellectual virtues. These are the virtues by which you know, you know the world and you can reason practically about it in light of what the world is like, okay? So, there, and there's a difference between, say, being able to think theoretically about, say, the, just in a very basic example, the layout of a campus, and then there's the actual getting from one place to another, so intellectual, so virtues are qualities that, that engage our faculties and make them do what they were meant to do well. It's like if you had a knife, you could have a really dull knife, and you would have a knife, but if it's a steak knife, that steak knife will be a good steak knife if it's sharpened. And the virtues the intellectual virtues are the sharpening of the human mind so that it, we are able to know and do in a way that conforms to our nature, okay? Then you'll need moral virtues. What are these? These are virtues not, the, not of the, the mind or, or the intellect, but rather of the desiring part of human being. Some examples are justice, fortitude, and temperance. I mean, there's one thing about justice, which is just rendering to others what we owe them. Okay? The, the, I, the recognition that one another is due, the temporal goods that one another is due. If I enter into a transaction and buy something from you, I buy an apple from you for a dollar, I owe you a dollar, and it's part of justice that I give you that dollar. And justice is this virtue that makes us want to give others what we ought to give them. And you'll have noticed that 
as you're getting older that justice isn't something to be taken for granted. Some people, sometimes we, do not want to give others what we ought to give them. Sometimes we want to take more for ourselves than is ours by right. And you need justice as a quality of a human being, something that actually makes human beings good to, to make it so that we, not, we don't simply know what justice is, but we actually desire to do it. And the same will be true for courage and temperance and so forth. Okay. Now, that is, believe it or not, in many ways, kind of just a prelude to the, the big thing that I want to talk about in this talk. That doesn't mean I'm going to talk forever, but you need to understand the, all that in order to get what a theological virtue is, according to Thomas Aquinas, okay? And there's a couple steps. First step is you have to grant that human beings are creatures of a certain kind that live well insofar as they live in conformity with reason. Everything I just said, we have to grant, but now we have to add something to this that Human beings not only have a natural end, something, a function that we fulfill, and insofar as we fulfill it well, it makes us happy, but we have a supernatural end. And this is not something that can be discovered by reason. It's something that rather has to be disclosed by revelation. And this is Thomas Aquinas' idea. It goes like this. Human beings have a natural end, which is a real end. But human beings also have a supernatural end because we were created not simply for a natural kind of flourishing but for a, or a natural kind of life, but for a supernatural kind of life. And the end for which we're created, the activity in which that supernatural life is fully manifested is union with God. It's to know God, to love God, to be known by God, to be loved by God, to know that God loves you, and to love God in turn. And this goes on and on for eternity. And it's not simply a kind of a solipsism uh, or a, a kind of private party between one individual and God, but rather a kind of, well, Scripture, thinking now of the book of Revelation, gives us these, this imagery of, on the one hand, a kind of feast. It's like a party. It's really good, overwhelmingly good, immeasurably good. And the reason for this is kind of contained in the very definition of what it means to be God. To be God is to be goodness itself. It's to be a good that is so desirable and so, so full within itself that it could be enjoyed for eternity and never, never exhausted. It's very unlike in this way. So if you haven't had dinner yet, you might start feeling the pains of hunger and you're thinking, I want, you know, I want a hamburger. Okay. 
and you start thinking about that hamburger, and hamburgers are good. I, I'm a, I love burgers, okay? But when you enjoy a burger, your enjoyment of it will, you consume it. Its existence will cease. And God is not like that. To enjoy God in no way diminishes God's goodness. Okay. So, here's what you need, Thomas thinks, in order to reach an end, any old end, not least a supernatural end. The first thing you need, and you know what I mean by an end? Just think purpose. The first thing you need to reach an end, natural or otherwise, is you need to know something about it. The second thing you need is you need to have some confidence that the, the thing known or discovered can be attained, all right? Otherwise, you would never pursue it. Let me, let me just, I'm just going to think of an example, right? Uh, I have no real hope or confidence that I'm ever going to, you know, meet Taylor Swift and share with her a song that I wrote and think that she, you know, that she's going to be so impressed by it that I'll be invited on stage and we'll, you know, we'll just serenade, uh, you know, New York City. I have no hope that that will happen. I have no confidence that that is possible. And therefore, it's not an object of hope for me. It's nothing at all. It's just a fantasy. It's, it, it's not even that. It's just an example. Okay? <clears throat> to know something is one thing. To have some inkling that something is within the realm of possibility is another. But to actually set your hope on something, you need confidence that it is achievable. And without this, we just, there are many good things in the world that we might notice, but we never really get going after them. And the third thing you need is not just knowledge of something, not just confidence that it's achievable, but you need to be inclined toward it. And this, according to Thomas, is why we need these things called theological virtues. We need faith, hope, and love. Faith is the virtue by which we believe in God. Love, charity, is the virtue by which we are inclined to God. We, we don't, we, so we know we are believing God, we trust in, in God, in faith, by charity, we are inclined to God in love so that we not only cognize God's goodness but or God's truth, but recognize God's goodness and are moved toward God in love. And then we need hope. Hope is the virtue by which we are, we not don't merely believe in God, we're not merely inclined to God, but we are steeled within ourselves with a kind of confidence. That, the, that God, the final good, 
the good of human beings can be not just known and loved, but actually attained. And the last thing I want to say to you this evening is that according to Thomas Aquinas, these virtues, and you, you may already be discerning this, are very unlike the virtues that I began describing at the outset of the lecture, because they're not the kinds of virtues that human beings can acquire just by their own lights. They have to be given. They have to, you have to be told about them, and then they have to be given to you. And if I were to continue lecturing, or if we had time for another lecture this evening, we would begin with that story about how those virtues are given. But the shorthand answer, according to Thomas, is they're given first and foremost in the cross of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven and then the showering uh, of grace that's made possible by these things. And as I say, that, however, is a very different lecture for another day. I think I'll leave it with that. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.